important that we not only speak about him, but that we visualize him as well. And therefore, this is a culture that's going up in hopefully many schools and shuls throughout. This is Rabbi Salavechik. This is my teacher for many, many years. He's the one that has shaped my life, and we'll go through a little bit later exactly the role that he's played. And I would suggest that this synagogue as well should have at some point, some place, a picture of Rabbi Salavechik as well. Tonight we're not going to speak about his teachings, his brilliance, his personality, his psychology, or even his life story. Though all of these at one point or other will come into play in our discussion. What we are going to do here this evening is to share my personal reflections, and therefore you have two questions that you want to ask me. The first question you have to ask me is, why should you care about Rabbi Zalavechik? He's obviously not of our Syrian community, and you might argue, well, but it's nothing to do with us. Welcome, good to see you. Welcome. There's no reason in the world you may argue that I should know that Rabbi Salavechik. And in fact, many of the Syrian rabbis wouldn't tell you that. There's no reason you should or want to know anything about Rabbi Salavechik. In fact, when I, when I first got into Rabbi Salavechik's shiur, which I'll describe a little bit as we go along, Chaim uh, had met me on King's Highway, I remember very well, it was back 25 or 30 years, and I said, I was very proud, it was a wonderful accomplishment, and, he sa- and I said to him, and he answered to me, he's very strange in some things that he says. So at that point, obviously Chabaduk was not enamored with Rabbi Salavechik, and therefore many Syrian rabbis will say it's not a place for a good Syrian boy to be. So the question that any Syrian congregation we're in, we are talking about Rabbi Salavechik, should raise the question, why in fact do we have to know about Rabbi Salavechik, is the first question. And second of all, you might raise the question, why should we care about you, Rabbi Labaton's personal reflections? Who cares what you think or feel about Rabbi Salavechik? The second question is less important than the first question. Because on some level, on some level, Everyone here, in some sense, is a seriously committed Jew. Rabbi Salavechik was a seriously committed religious Jew. Or better, one should say, I would say, though he of course would not agree with the statement, that he was the ideal Jew from my point of view. I would say that he, that he was the ideal Jew, period, without any quali- qualifiers. Although of course he would, without question, frown at such what I'm going to call an absurd statement. And I'll admit to you that it is an absurd statement that makes very little sense to many people. However, for some strange reason, I'm going to stand by that statement and going to defend it in the course of our discussion. And I would go further to say that a Jew of this type comes along once every thousand years. Also, perhaps an absurd statement, but still nevertheless, I think, true. Now, you should want to come to know a Jew of this type. What does he offer? What does he communicate? What does he represent? Why should one want to know a person of this type? Come back to that. Now, why should you care about my personal reflections? The answer is, you shouldn't. There is no reason that you should care about what I have to say. In fact, I would go so far as to say that what I have to say is trite unimportant. But perhaps they will be able to convey to you Something about the Rav, Rabbi Salavechik was known as the Rav, affectionately and with a great deal of respect, 
as the Rav. And perhaps my reflections will convey to you something that his official biography would not convey to you. Something perhaps we'll call it of a human dimension that goes beyond the truth of the quote-unquote official biography. I may go even further than this and say that sometimes personal reflections will communicate a dimension that the official biography cannot actually communicate whatsoever. But I'm not concerned with it, but I will give you access to it, as you'll see as we go along. What I want to achieve this evening is for you to come to know the person, the man, not the historical background that actually produced the person, the man. In fact, from my point of view, it's not only that I want you to come to know who Rabbi Soloveitchik is, I would say to you that in many ways I am desperate that you know the man. To me this is not simply a class to give, but it's something almost, I'm saying, an obligation that I have that I have to communicate the information as to who and what Rabbi Soloveitchik was all about. I would say to you that the knowledge of him is a gift, that I would like to share with you this evening an important gift and in a word I would say to you that simply knowing and studying with Rabbi Soloveitchik has immeasurably enriched my life intellectually, emotionally, existentially, experientially in every which way that you could imagine it was an overwhelming experience and I'd like to share that wealth with you or whatever measure I can we should all try to engage in those things in life that enrich. The Rav, Rabbi Salvechik, enriches. Certainly we all have to make the choice that we could spend our lives in watching football games and drinking beer. And we may even think that that enriches our life, and to some degree or other, to some people, that does in fact enrich life. not going to argue that point. However, there are many other things that enrich life, many other experiences that enrich life, and I would like to, in some measure or other, share with you how Rabbi Salavajic enriched my life. It is true that it's very difficult to in fact do that. It's very difficult to share with you an experience that you have not experienced. How can words alone capture that experience that I experienced? And as we go along, you'll see how profound of an impression Rabbi Salavajic had made upon me. In the same way, if I were to try to share with you the experience of marriage, how extraordinarily enriching it is, or share with you the experience of having children, how extraordinary experience that is, if you haven't yet had children, then of course you're not going to really capture it. I could be the most eloquent speaker in the whole entire world and still not be able to capture even the experience of love, of marriage, in the verbalization of it, nor the experience of having children. Yet nevertheless, certainly it's worthwhile to try to capture that experience and try to engage you and share with you the gift, the wealth, the person of Rabbi Salavechik who has enriched my life. Almost one would say by accident. I did not try to experience Rabbi Salavechik in any which way and many, I guess one might say, do not feel the way. You're going to hear by Harari next week and I'm not sure whether or not he will share the same experience that I'm sharing with you. I don't know if he was as impact, 
attacked it by the Rav as I was. That you'll see as we go along. But I do believe that any person who has had such exposure to the Rav does and feel to one degree or another enriched by the experience. And those of you going to come next week should ask Rabbi Harari the question whether or not you feel enriched by the experience of having studied with Rabbi Salavajan. I would like to communicate to you this evening through these personal reflections and the narrative that I had. Not the truth of the man. It would certainly be what I'm going to call chutzpah, overly bold. In no way do I think that I'm able to capture the truth or even the uniqueness of the man. And that certainly, uh, for many, it would be the obligation of a speaker to in fact capture the essence of who Rabbi Salavajic is and what he was all about. That would be overly bold and chutzpah. One cannot do so. But certainly, what I do have the right to do is to <coughs> communicate to you the feeling that I have. And perhaps that feeling may be more legitimate in some ways than the truth of the man itself. Now, allow me to go back to my original absurd statement, which was, those of you who didn't come late, know, which is that Rabbi Salvechik represents the ideal Jew who comes along every thousand years. Now, again, that is something that should be challenged. How dare you say that? My ideal. But I'm going to say further than that, he is the ideal Jew. So let's see how we defend that statement. How are we going to defend it? Now, obviously, the year number 1000 was not necessarily a random number. It's close to 850 years. Why have I chosen that number? Why have I said that Rabbi is the ideal Jew who comes along once every 850 years? Good, good. So that number is not accidental, but rather I'm comparing Rabbi to the Rambam. And those, of course, who know Rabbi know that the Rav and the Rambam shared much in common. What did they share in common? Obviously, both were fiercely loyal to Torah and to the Jewish tradition. Fiercely loyal. There are some axioms in life that we have to accept as human beings. We cannot challenge all areas or aspects of life, but we accept certain axioms. Both the Rambam and the Salvagic were born into rabbinic families that accepted from the time they were infants the Weltanschung or the world outlook of a rabbinic religious Jew. But both were intensely serious about halakha, Jewish law, as well as living life traditionally based on, of course, Jewish sources. Both were, however, to one measure or another, in one case or another, willing to challenge those sources, but always only up to a certain point. We'll get to that later on. Both were concerned about the direction of halacha as well as the philosophy of halacha. One, of course, should read if one is and wants to be a literate Jew, level three, is that level one, level three, both Rabbi Salvechik's Isha Halacha, which is a extraordinarily profound and yet difficult but very important work, as well as Muren Nebuchim, part 3, 51-54, to get a sense of the Rambam's philosophy of Halakha. One wants to know. A shortcut, rather than reading part 3, 51-54, which is only about 10 or 12 pages, 
We can read Rabbi Tversky's book, which is 592 pages. That's a shortcut. Right. That's Rabbi Tversky. You read the first, and if you want a shortcut, you read Rabbi Tversky's part, chapter 1 and chapter 6, which is only about half the book. But if you read those two, you get a good sense as to what the Rambam was really all about. He was a son-in-law, right? Yes. Rabbi Tversky was Rabbi Salish's son-in-law. Correct. That's correct. The Rav was certainly described by many, and it's not far off the mind, far off the mark, as an existentialist. The Rambam was described as a Neoplatonic Aristotelian. Not important for us what those terms really mean, but it does point to one fact that both were interested in philosophy. Both were concerned with the current philosophical notions swirling around the Jewish world at that period of time. Now, is that true of every single great rabbinic sage? Answer? No. Of course not. Of course not. Let's take any other rabbinic sage of the modern period. Let's take Is he concerned in any which measure whatever about the current philosophical issues that engage philosophical minds? The answer is of course not has no clue, not interested, has no meaning to him, completely way beyond him, one would say. Similarly, one can obviously find great sages of the medieval period of time, contemporaries of the Rambam, who are not interested either in the philosophical norms, the philosophical issues that engage the mind of the Rambam. Whether he's going to speak about Rashi, about any of these, as opposed to, on the other hand, Rabbeinu Bachia. Rabbeinu Bachia, Sa'adja Gaon, all who preceded the Rambam, were concerned about the philosophical issues. One of the ways that we can define what we're going to speak about in two weeks on May 17th, modern orthodoxy, is the engagement in the modern world. Obviously, modern is a relative term. The modern world in the 12th century was the modern world for them, as is the modern world nowadays, the modern world for us. Both the Rambam and the Rav were both concerned about modern world issues. The, the Rambam as a Neoplatonic Rosatilian, the Rav as an existentialist, in quotes, to whatever measure he was, certainly both engaged the philosophical issues of that period of time, although not really as philosophers. Many will argue that Moreno Bukhim is not a philosophical book. Philosophical book begins with a statement of its premises. Moreno does not begin with a statement of its premises. It's a book wherein Moreno Bukhim there is confusion between the engagement of he who has studied rabbinic sources is a religious Jew, knows rabbinic sources, and modern philosophical norms, and is a clash of those two sets of norms. The person is confused. He needs a guide to the perplexed. And so too, one, would, one does not see Isha Halakha as a philosophical work that a Kantian person would write. No, it's about Halakhic men. It's a philosophical work, as is the Halakhic mind. A philosophical work, but it's not really pure philosophy. It's really a result of the clash between two norms. The philosophical secular norms and the religious norms that we live by. And how do we live that way? Both of these great thinkers are willing to engage these philosophical norms of the modern period of time. And they are willing to write a philosophical or quasi-philosophical work that expresses how we Jews see the world despite 
or through the lens of this new modern philosophical norms. Obviously, anybody that's gone to college and taken any philosophical course is going to be challenged by these issues. If you have any sort of integrationist kind of a mind. Meaning, you're going to read Kantian philosophy and you're going to raise the question, one second, was Abraham our forefather moral, in quotes, by virtue of Kantian moral ethics? Or not? Does he fail the test? Wants to raise that as a question. Or killing Amalek, destroying every single man who tried to Amalek, does that make the Kantian moral grave? Is an interesting question. Similarly, yeah, Harvey. I'm going to sound stupid and I miss something, but Immanuel Kant. The, probably the greatest philosopher of the modern period of time, 18th century. He was a friend of Moses Mendelssohn. They discussed philosophy together, which is interesting. A German. Um, he's a standard, and he is the Einstein, because you know that reference term, of moral philosophy. Very few people would disagree with that statement. <coughs> not Jewish. Okay, not Good old boy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Fantastic mind. Brilliant mind. It, 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 one, at one point in life, should read a little bit of Kantian philosophy. His moral, his moral structure. How he deals with the, the moral universe. Um, but yet, you're going to raise that question. Yeah. Same question. <laughs> you're only to ask the question. So I'm very impressed. Let's ask the question. Very good. Bold enough. Heroic enough. Those informed charges are always celebration, so we'll get back to them. Similarly, Hegel of the 19th century was an extraordinary overarching mind. He wrote the last great philosophy of history. So one has to raise the question, by Hegel's criteria of, as a philosophy of history, he writes about the Jews, appreciates what the Jews have contributed to the history of mankind, and yet we were left behind. We were a great stage in the development or developing manifestation or revelation of the divine. We were the first great stage, perhaps one might say. Paganism push aside. But then you have Catholicism, and you have Protestantism, and that really is the final combination of human history. So it's a fantastic work, how he's able to integrate all the details of history into this overarching philosophical framework. So you have to raise the question, how do we match up as Jews engaging this extraordinary mind? You want to know the answer to that question. Similarly, if you were to read, let's say, the great atheists of the 20th century, there are two. To whom am I referring? Russell. Sorry? Russell's one. Freud. Last century. Sartre. Right? Sartre and Russell. Now you want to know, well, these are great philosophical minds, Richard Russell is certainly outstanding, and you want to know, how do we match up to what Russell says about the distance or lack thereof of God? We are proponents of a God-centered life, obviously. So if we are, Russell comes along and laughs at us. Well, how are we going to respond to his laughter? So to Sartre. So now... Therefore, anybody that's gone to college, anybody that's, that's taken any of these courses, is going to worry about engaging these best and brightest in the same way that, as Jews, we want to engage in what Einstein says about the physical universe. Because if Einstein came along, or any of the other, let's say, uh, scientific minds, 
and denied our worldview, our the part of our worldview that deals with science, then are we going to change our worldview? Are we going to say that he's right, we're wrong, we're wrong, he's right? How are we going to engage those great minds? So the same way that we did it last semester, scientifically, one should do it philosophically as well. How do we match up to the great philosophical minds of the minor period? Rabbi Soloveitchik, the Rav, as well as, of course, the Rambam, both engaged the outside world, whether Neoplatonic, Aristotelianly, as the Rambam, or essentially both engaged. But not, again, as pure philosophers, but rather as Jewish thinkers. Both men were of great integrity and honesty, both profoundly human, both people of great compassion. The Rambam has an interesting statement that one should look up in his laws of charity in this chapter 7 chapter 7 and he said he was cruel and has no compassion obviously on the poor you have to suspect his genealogy can't be Jewish if he's a cruel compassionless person can't be Jewish it's a drama. It's a striking statement. Why? Because he's almost placing compassion in a biological genetic framework as opposed to a psychological category. Almost. But, or maybe not even almost. He's really saying, if you are somebody who is cruel and have no, and have no compassion for the poor, then suspect your biology. How can you be a cruel Jew? He, the Rambam would say, it's an oxymoronic statement. So the Rambam strongly is a person of deep compassion, care, concern, those people who don't have. Even to the extent, when in Chol chapter 10 or 11, talks about the relationship that we have to even that Akum, that pagan, think it's wrong about a pagan, it's not clear because you have to look at the uncensored edition of the Rambam, where it talks about that non-Jewish person who lives in Israel, who is, let's, say, let's call him a get toshav, and he wouldn't be a pagan if he's a get toshav, but certainly not Jewish. And you have the obligation of burying his dead, of visiting him when he's, when he's ill, because cholim, all to the non-Jewish person. Why? And he quotes the Pasuk, because Torah's ways are ways of peace and harmony. Mishleah teaches us that. So the Rambam ends and sees the entire revolving acts of Judaism around issues of compassion issues of concern for the other person. Even those who would think that because he ends his Mishnah Torah and the Pasuk, would say, no, the Ram is that great intellectual. He only cares about philosophy. How could I prove you wrong? By simply quoting to you, very good. Because what is telling you at the end of Moreh Nebuchim? At the end of which is the height of intellectualism, and you finally reach the palace of God Himself. And now what happens? Rama will tell you. He will quote for you the Pasuk in Yemiah Perekte Pasuk Kafbet, 922. And you should be aware of Pasuk, I'm sure I quoted before. You know by heart. A wise person, don't self glorify in your wisdom. And don't glorify in your great wealth. And don't self glorify in your strength, your stature. Neither in wisdom, nor in wealth, nor in strength or stature to glorify. But rather in this should glorify. 
has killed all things. Come to know me. So that's Yimyao Pekasuka Pekakimo. So he's saying, oh, you see, it's intellectualism. I would tell a scholarship. Kenya Hashem, Yimyao says, what's the end? Hashem, Oseh, Hesetakamashpat, Baz, Yelhasnu Hashem, because what do I really want from you? I want righteousness I want compassion I want kindness this is what I really want God says so now what's the problem telling you come to know me and translate your compassion oh, sorry translate your knowledge of God into compassion for your fellow human being which of course is the teaching of because sorry David because you are creating a little team, I have to have compassion for you. So now, it's an interesting issue. Today we had a blood drive in Hillel. What's my question now? I want you all to go give blood. Why are you giving blood? Because God said so? Or because it's a humanitarian gesture? Free parking. Free parking, right. <laughs> Boston. Is one and the same? Not one and the same. I will say Okay, good. So therefore, the answer to my question might be that give blood because the mitzvah, right, <coughs> which is knowledge of God, which has to, of necessity, translate into having compassion. In other words, one should not be, from the Ross point of view, a bleeding heart, knee-jerk liberal, <coughs> loving of all humanity, but rather love humanity because God said so. See the human being as a reflection of God's presence. Sentimental king. Not because you're naturally kind and humanitarianly oriented, but rather because the Atashem, knowledge of God, leads you to a love of mankind. So the Rambam sees these two as A leading to B. So the Rambam certainly was that person who was very concerned about these kinds of issues. When it tells, yeah. Why is the difference on point between those two? Because what if, what if God does not command me to do something, or rather, what if God commands me to do that which my bleeding heart right, does not see as compassionate, but just keep it killing all of Amalek? So it's one issue that one has to expand upon, not for now. That's only one issue. But certainly, when we look at Morena Bukhim, the end of it, we do get a sense of to what degree the Rambam was concerned about human beings. So, and throughout, all of Mishneh Torah. Another example. You look in Hachot Purim. Hachot Purim. Very last chapter deals with Purim. Ramam lists, of course, the four mitzvot you have on Purim. Read the Megillah twice. Have a Seudah Mitzvah. Now, you could raise the question, and to the best of my knowledge, Ram is the first to raise this question. Which of these four is most important? Right. So the Rambam, and you should look this up as well, in an extended statement, in an incredible statement, will say that giving to the poor is the most over here because it's much more important to make the poor person who has nothing to eat happy and joyous more important than eating your own siodat mitzvah. So the poor, again, takes center stage for the Rambam over here. To an extraordinary degree, with the Pasuk that he quotes in that particular statement, is what? You are like God when you do this. When you are concerned about the poor person, you are imitating God. That's what God wants of you, to do that particular act. Concern for the poor, give to him. Share with him, rather than simply having a fantastic suudah mitzvah. 
which translates practically into, let's say you have some diamonds and you invite 15 people over. So it costs you $150. Right? $100? What do I have? more than that? Is that what you spent? More than that? Oh, no. So, let's say it costs you $200. Right? You have a nice roast dinner and you have chicken and you have hamid lahmajin. What should you do? Right. <laughs> what should we do? Cut it in half and give half to charity. Well, we had Mordechai's bar mitzvah a few weeks ago. That was the issue. Ellen told the caterer, I want not to spend a lot on having a fancy dinner. We want your cheapest dinner. This is a wonderful woman, this lady, this woman over here. I want to have the cheapest dinner. I don't have any restrictions. Whatever. So whatever it is, it is. That's what it is. The cheapest dinner you could have. And then whatever money we saved she had bought what I didn't said she had bought instead of buying flowers for the centerpieces she bought 20 or 30 um, things that high lifeline need for their camp oh, wow. cancer kids and she called Hask what do they need so one needed uh, school supplies one needed balls all kinds of basketballs and balls. she went out and bought 20 25 of those things and she said and Mordechai learned a lesson that we're not concerned about the flowers co- that are going to be thrown away, we're going to learn about giving to these kids. Mm-hmm. So that's the hazard that she had taught Mordechai in terms of that issue. So that's the way one should do. Instead of having a fantastic affair, have less of a fantastic affair, because who cares what you eat anyway, really? <coughs> and then the rest of us should be given to charity. Right? That's what we should teach our children. So obviously that's the Rambam's practical implication. Rambam is telling you, instead of having this fantastic zoo down with and spend $200, spend $100, and have chopped liver and give the rest to charity. So that's the Rambam. Now, Rosh also, in Isha Racha, has the very same strong humanitarian streak in him as well. Who is Isha Racha, the man of Halacha? What is he really all about? Right? So the Rambam, um, the Rav talks about this in Isha Racha, page 91. Isha Racha takes up his stand in the midst of the concrete world. He's very much a this-worldly person. His feet planted firmly on the ground of reality and he looks about and sees, listens and hears and publicly protests against the oppression of the helpless, the defrauding of the poor, the plight of the orphan. What is the thrust of all of Judaism? This is it. This is what it's really all about. And of course, anybody that knows the Nevi'im, Amos, etc. knows this is what it's all about. He is the father of the orphans. Right? This is the thrust of what Judaism is all about. He's Avi Yitomim. The judge of the widows. My uncle, Rav Meir Berlin Barilan, told me that once Rav Chaim of Brisk, Rav Selechik's grandfather, was asked what the function of a rabbi is. That's a, to me, a frightening statement. It's a powerful statement. And how does... I think, to me, how does one live as a rabbi given the following statement? Rav Chaim Soloveitchik is a rabbi, so it's his grandfather who innovated a new Talmudic method of how to study Talmud. For the first time in a thousand years, we have a new way of studying Talmud called the Brisk Method, which is based on strict definition, classification, conceptualization. That's what it is. You have this whole Talmud, and you have all kinds of issues that are dealt with in the Talmud. From so a from Chaim would take a sugya, a portion, and he would define the categories very carefully and very clearly, define, analyze, conceptualize, and classify. And he would argue that the Ramam did. 
What is it or not is an interesting question. We wrote what the Rambam did. To classify, to conceptualize what it's really all about. And thereby understand halakha much more so. Example given though it's not part of our topic. A brisk analysis, let's say of avelut, of mourning, would be the following. As an avel, we are required to tear our clothes. Right? Tearing the clothes is of course what we're going to call ma'aseh mitzvah. You have to do the deed, ma'aseh mitzvah, of tearing your clothes as an avel. That's clearly it. However, the brisk would say, you did not fulfill the mitzvah itself by simply tearing your clothes. You just did the ma'aseh mitzvah. Rather, another part of the mitzvah, which is what? The kiyuma mitzvah. What's the kiyuma mitzvah? Feeling agony over a person lost. Feeling an emotional sense of emptiness, the void in life. So, of course, your question would be, what if you do the tearing and you're happy the guy died? Who cares about this guy anyway? He didn't buy me a car when I was 21. Kish, who needs him? Right? Then perhaps one shouldn't tear, but certainly in the film of mitzvah. Similarly, praying. The ma'asah mitzvah of praying is the verbalization of the tefillah, the words. What's the kiyumah mitzvah? Philomusat is not the praying itself per se, rather it's the awareness of standing in front of God. Let's say one prays, he does ma'asiyah mitzvah. He went through the entire mitzvah, it's great. However, did not fulfill the mitzvah if he does not have that awareness, that sense of standing in front of Bore Olam when you're praying. In multiple areas, Rabbi Salavechik would create another halakha category because the details of halakha have not fit well. So therefore we have to create what's known as tudinim, as a halakha. And this is halakha and that, to, to satisfy the needs of clear definitions and conceptualizations. So that's our plan. And everybody of course would say he's a super intellectual, profoundly brilliant, able to take all Semitic literature and conceptualize it. In Rabbi Saladechik's class, we did Masechet Pulim with him, he once made the statement that before Rav Chaim, all of your Di'ah was pots and pans. You get to Micha on your Di'ah about Bishuk Masar Bechalav, Taruvot, all about pots and pans. Kosher, not kosher. You mix this, you mix that, you milk spoon, you, you meat spoon. So that's what you get to Micha That's what you get to Micha right? Before Rav Chaim was all pots and pans. He had a thousand laws about pots and pans. Right? After Rav Chaim, there was three principles. We were able to conceptualize in three or four principles. Conceptualization, which those concepts, you know the whole entire story. They all flow. All details flow from these two or three different concepts. Right? That's your time. So, sorry? Was he accepted in the right, right world? Or was yeah, of course, absolutely, thousand percent. Nobody denies the Thousand percent. Nobody could learn like him. Nobody could learn like him either. But something new, he was 100% accepted. Without question. Correct. Now, so now what for a... New but not different. It wasn't so different. Uh, I don't know. Is it different? It was radical. It was innovative. It was creative. It was bold. It was original. But it was taking the same old material. Absolutely. But seeing it... Yeah, reworking it. Correct. It's reworking it. So, Rav Chaim was, of course, taken in, in every world. The Rabbi Salvechik is the issue. He's the problem because he has a PhD in philosophy and he had... and he had deviated, they would say, from the norm. That's what it is. Correct. So Rabbi Salvechik for sure was not accepted, but Rav Chaim certainly was. His grandpa. So now this is super intellectual. Every living moment is spent in learning. Talmud Torah. 
right? Incredibly so. And what, what I recommend very highly is that this is a booklet that the Salvation Institute and Bookline Messages put out. It's a good introduction. I ordered about 40, hopefully, for next time or the time that I come. And I was just you all buy. It's probably about 8 or 10,000 of it is. And the back has a CD, which Rabbi Shachter, speaking about his biography. And along the way, you get some insight into who Rav Chaim was. It's a great education. It's an honor CD that you should all hear, all listen to. So that will get to, we'll come back. Hopefully, we'll have them by them. I didn't have them today. But okay, so now, for Rav Chaim, super intellectual, learning is everything. Everything is conceptualization and philosophy. Good. So that's the case. What's the role of the rabbi? So, quote, Rav Chaim replied to Rav Berlin when asked what the function of a rabbi is. Rav Chaim replied, quote, to redress the grievances of those who are abandoned alone, to protect the dignity of the poor, and to save the oppressed from the hands of the oppressor. Unquote. Neither ritual decisions nor political leadership constitute the main task of Allah man. Far from it. The actualizations the actualization of the ideals of justice and righteousness is the pillar of fire which Allah man follows when he as a rabbi and a teacher in Israel serves his community. So if a Sadatik as well would see Hesed kindness as the focal point, as the Rambam, as the focal point of Isha Allah. It's not Tamur Torah Kineget Kulam. Strangely and strikingly enough, those who know Rabbi know how committed he was to Tamur Torah to learning. It's all about learning. Learning was a moral discipline, and you'll see when you fail in that moral discipline by not learning properly, you'll see how we responded in a few minutes. But this statement really qualifies that by saying to right the wrong is more important than even learning. If that's the case, then rabbi should be spending, spending the time, and this I'm, I'm very much opposed to me personally, rather than, though I do it, rather than, I don't enjoy it, rather than doing all the levayot and doing all of those issues, I could do 24-7 hesed. I could actually spend 24-7 doing hesed. There's that much I have to do. And some rabbis do that, and they have to be praised for doing that. It's not my cup of tea. Can't do it. To me, for whatever reason it is, I'm much more attracted to the learning part of it, to the to the study, to the teaching of it, that's me. Rabbi Abner Weiss, who's now rabbi in, um, in England at this point, told me when we were in South Africa together, he says, becoming a rabbi is great, wonderful, it forced you to do chesed. He's right. You have to do the live you have to do all this chesed, and he's right, you have to do it, it's good. It's wonderful, one should do it. But it's not my natural inclination. My natural in Switch. Tingle. Oh, yeah. That's the Yes, correct. Good. Two points. That's the lion story. Yes, that's good. It's good. South Africa. 1975. So, Rabbi in this paragraph of Isha Lacha, as well shows his commitment as a person of deep compassion as the Rambam. Good. Both. Both Rabbi Salavechik as well as the Rambam were bold thinkers willing to accept the danger or better, the religious danger in thinking. Thinking is not a value-free enterprise. Thinking could be dangerous, right? Those who have thought know how dangerous thinking could be, especially when you think about religious issues. When the Rambam engaged Aristotle, was he willing to accept the consequences and the responsibility of engaging Aristotle? The answer is 
Of course, yes. Torah is based on truth. If Aristotle speaks truth, and it's proven as truth, you must accept Aristotle as a true thinker. So what's the fittingness that you should know by now, should be coming out of your ears, statement of the Rambam. Excellent. Very good. Incredible. I am very impressed. Who's your uncle? It's genetic. It's what's all the genes. Correct. The Rambam says, Listen to the truth, no matter whatever source it is. And in that context, I'm just talking about philosophers, hachamim, any of those people. So whether it's Jew or Gentile, if it's true, you must accept it. So if Aristotle spoke the truth, you must accept it. Period. End story. Right? Good. And as Alpha says as well, and we're in the book in 225, again, it's something that we've made reference to in the past, one should be aware, where the, the Ramam says, boldly, if in fact, Aristotle has proven creation is false and eternity of the world slash universe is true, then we must of necessity accept eternity of the world universe irrespective of what Bereshit teaches us. Irrespective. doesn't make a difference. What do we do with Bereshit? We simply will reinterpret the gates of interpretation have not yet been closed. We will reinterpret all of those Pesukim Metu Bereshit referring to eternity of the world, because there was no creation if we believe Aristotle, if Aristotle had proven it. And we would also then have to reinterpret all miracles, as well, of course, goes along with this. We interpreted all miracles didn't happen as breaks in nature. Couldn't be if the world is eternal. As we reinterpret all of the anthropomorphisms of the Bible. So that's a bold statement. You are risking your whole entire Torah in that sense. But that's the Rambam. In every area that he engaged in, he was willing to risk the danger of religious thinking, philosophical thinking, or engaging in theology. The Rambam is obvious. It's clear. What about Rabbi Salvation? Rabbi Salvation as well. Now this is a narrative that I'm going to tell you, a story that I heard secondhand from somebody that was he who heard it firsthand. Here's the narrative. First story that I'm going to tell you stuff. Tell you five stories tonight. This is the first of the stories. Rabbi Salvechik had a Semicha student in his class. There are those who say that it was Professor Frederick Summers, who was a professor of philosophy at Brandeis. When I was on my way to Brandeis, they told me that he was the person about whom the story is told. This person is getting Semicha from Rabbi Salvechik at one point or other, and he went to Rabbi Salvechik privately to say, Rebbe, I have a desire to learn religion at Columbia University. Religion, take a major in religion. Right? Religion does not mean Judaism, religion means comparative religion. When you study about Islam, Christianity, East, Buddhism, the whole nine yards of it. Right? But I'm afraid to do so. So Mr. Richard tells him, if you want to do so, you feel that's where you're going to find truth, then you must do so. But he tells him, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous to go study religion in a secular university at Columbia. So Mosulovic said, for the past 20 or 30 years, I have flown two or three times a week from Boston to New York to give my shirin. And it was dangerous. I flew for the last 20 or 30 years back and forth, and it was yet dangerous to do so. But I did it. Because one has to engage with that which is dangerous sometimes. 
So the person did so, he went ahead and he lost all religion. He came back from his allergic two or three years later and said, Rebbe, the plane crashed. Which is very sad. I mean, it's a sad thing. You know, and we don't know what Rabbi Soloveitchik said in response to that. Rabbi Lanner, who was a good friend of mine, had said he was there when that statement. Now, when I was at Brandeis, Professor Summers was at Brandeis, and although we were in different departments, I should have really gone and see if that's a true story. And then, too late, this opportunity. But I should have gone and found out if that's true or not true. It's certainly an interesting story that tells us about what Rabbi Soloveitchik would have said in that situation. He was not afraid to engage. He might have told this person, make sure your groundings are deep in Judaism to be able to deal with these issues. It's not so simple to deal with it. And maybe he thought that this particular person, if it were summers or not, was well steeped in Jewish sources before engaging in the study of religion. Maybe he thought that, that he was and was not. Rosh Hashanah was not afraid to engage in any of these disciplines. Good. So now, back to our topic. Our goal is to give a sense or a feeling of who Rosh is. Now, in saying that he was, in fact, this proto-Maimonidean type, and showing the comparisons, I hope that I've shown you already that he does come along once in a thousand years. Can you think of anybody else in the last thousand years of Jewish intellectual history who was so philosophically oriented? Yes, there are multiples of great rabbinic figures who are halakhically concerned, deeply so, the Gaon of Vilna, and many others. Sorry? Not committed to halakha. Sort of. Well, he didn't have much choice. That's correct. He wasn't given choice. He chose to not be committed to it. Obviously. First, what came first? He had the chickens clearly came before the egg. Yeah, he was excommunicated because he was not committed. Yeah. The interesting point, the interesting point, hold on. That scares me, that statement. That's a, that's a close of tapes type of story. We'll get to that in a second. Um, yeah, the Goldman Vilma was probably the second. The, and the Rosalogic did identify very close with the Goldman Vilma. But Hirsch was not intellectually open we would say I would say Hearst had his agenda if you read the 19 letters I made this point before on other occasions if you read the 19 letters I find it to be an extraordinarily unimpressive work where he has a truth you don't get it you're a fool pass is what the 19 letters is really all about his philology was all wrong in terms of where he based his whole study on, philo- on philological uh, understanding of Tanakh Torah is all wrong because he thought that the Bible is based on Hebrew with a trial uh, a Dual literal root is triliteral root. They philosophers are saying nowadays. So he wasn't really willing to engage. Plus, he castigated the Rambam for being so affected, influenced by Aristotle, when he himself was affected by Hegelian philosophy and doesn't admit it or doesn't not even aware of it. So he wasn't self-reflective. Now, on the other hand, he was willing to do battle with the reformers and with conservative Judaism, and he was a great person in his own right. He was a great person in his own right. But certainly he's not my model of the ideal Jew because he wasn't seeking, searching for truth with the same rigor, intellectual honesty, I believe, as the Rambam, as Rabbi Soloveitchik. So I wouldn't put them in the same category whatsoever. The depth of interpretation of Rabbi Soloveitchik, let's say of an only man of faith, where he talks about Bereshit, Aleph, and Beth, 
is so profoundly human you don't get that same sense at all of reading Hirsch get information but there's no announce no depth of thought it's not a deep human thinker Mr. is very much a deep human thinker Hirsch didn't have the same mastery of sources engaged philosophically that's true but had the same mastery of halakhic sources at Rav Salvation you don't see that at all so it's hard to find somebody who really could match Rav Salvation in these areas of incredible mastery of halakha of the Mesorah deep abiding commitment traditionally to Jewish sources without question a mastery of philosophy a willingness to engage the modern world and all modern philosophical issues as we'll see in a couple of weeks who else is there? so from the Rambam till now it's hard to find somebody maybe there's somebody but it's hard to find the Salvation, from what I understand didn't publish much I mean obviously I'm pretty ignorant but he published a lot of works this, this matter that you're talking about? Depends what much is all of, what do you mean by much? In other words, you're comparing the Rambam who kind of like, not only did he do his philosophical work, he also put a halakhic work, and, and you're comparing somebody like that, I mean, to the Rav, who, I, from what I heard, he really didn't publish that much except for a few works. And okay, so what? his point was maybe very strong in those few works that he published, but it's a very different you know, between the Rambam who not only attacked the halakha but also the philosophy side like as a whole you know as opposed to what you're talking about here where you don't have unless you have it you don't have published works yeah okay, what's interesting about that is that because the medium has changed in the last thousand years one can say two points one is that the Rambam spoke to a crowd let's say 50, 60, 100 people Right? So Vechik, because of the medium of tapes and because of numbers of students, spoke to thousands upon thousands upon thousands of students. I don't think it'd be exaggeration to say that the Rub directly spoke to hundreds of thousands of people over the course of 40 years of giving shooting until he figured out he had 100 people to shoot each time. He spoke to two to three to four thousand people every year to shoot that he gave for his father and for his mother, right? And for his wife. So there were thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that were that heard him between the tapes, between those. So he didn't have to publish to impact. The Rambam couldn't get beyond the immediate Ben Midrash, right? So that's number one. What tapes? We have hundreds of tapes, hundreds, thousands. Yeah. You have some. You didn't that yet. You made any copies, right? Yes. So that's what I like, right? You found it. Yeah, there's a fellow, Abel Vavitz, who's a good friend of my in-laws. He's Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's nephew. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's nephew. He was the official taper. He's a businessman, official taper at Maimonides School. has the tapes of thousands of classes, I mean, hundreds of thousands of classes. Whenever I was switching, he was the official person that gave the tapes. So I once begged him in 1975, 70, I was 82, 81, 82. For one, just give me one. He gave me one. Just one he'd give me, but he has closets full of tapes. He doesn't know that the Rav, that the Rav would want to disseminate them, therefore he feels an obligation not to do so, because these are oral presentations. doesn't mean that everything that you say should necessarily be an official tape. That's one issue. And that's a problem. 
you sacrifice when you present them. Because every lecturer, every speaker knows that the spoken word is not the written word. You may want to make sure that your written word is of an absolute nature. Every single word precisely formulated. And so let's what of that nature? Every word, every line, every phrase has to be precise, exact, accurate. He was that demanding of himself. He strove for excellence in all of his works. His works, these two, the lowly men of faith, which are substantial, as well as halachic mind, as well as his five essays in tradition, all of which are wonderful to read, are classic works. The kind of work where when you read it, the first time you say, wow. What happens the second time you read it? Wow. Wow. With a little two next to it. Wow. Squared. You read it a third, fourth, and fifth time. And what happens? Each time. And I've done it. Read along with this at least five, six, seven times. Each time. You can tell because I write them in different colors. My notes are in different colors. Blue, black, pencil, red, green. Oh yeah. Here's your red. Here's your blue. Why? Because each time you read it, you find something new in it. Which is one of the definitions of the word classic. What makes a work a classic? The nuances. You read it and you hear it again. You see something here. Example given. Let's say you're a fan of the 60s music. Right? Some of us are. Now what happens when you hear it the 15th time? It's boring. Why? Because it's the same. Help me Rhonda does not change. It is the same. Help me, right? That's what it is. However, when you listen to Beethoven the fifth time, Brian Wilson's music was great. Brian Wilson, Beach Boys, Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. 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 Every time you hear something new, you can't capture it in a phrase. It's just endlessly creative. 200 years later, 300 years later, Beethoven is still challenging to musicians, musicologists, what do you really say and how do you really say it? Right. The way that Rabbi Tversky formulates this statement, he'll say, and his work is as well, endlessly repercussive. That's his phrase. That's a classic work. Whenever you read it, it endlessly has repercussions to it. Again and again and again you read it, again and again you feel, wow, look what I have over here. Something extraordinary. So that's these works. I could go back and read this another five times. I want to. I have an intellectual desire to read this again. And to read this again. This is only read two or three times. And again you read it, say, wow. You have this feeling of incredible, oh, thank you, over there, incredible joy, intellectual joy, if that's an, a, an important phrase, intellectual joy in reading this again and again and again. So now, A, he did write, I would say substantially, I think it's almost um, mythic, it's a myth, he doesn't write a lot. He has five best in tradition, he has Isha Lacha, has confrontation. He has uh, the halakhic mind. He has limited. So he has essays, number one. He has a large number of um, Hebrew essays. A large number that he, that he wrote. Hebrew essays. Yiddish as well. So he did write a lot. Much more than uh, everybody here combined had written. So he wrote a lot. Maybe not compared to others tremendously, but he wrote an awful lot, I think. I mean, a lot. If you look at the great scholars 
So what have they written? 20, 30 articles and one or two books. Rabbi Tversky and, and Rabbi Saul Lieberman, they're great scholars. What have they written? So he's written, not hugely, but certainly he's written a lot in Hebrew, English, and in Yiddish. His bibliography must have 100, 200 items. And there are published bibliographies. Tunamada Journal, I think, five or six, seven, has a whole bibliography, I think, of his. So it's, it's, it's a lot. But also, his impact was in the oral presentation. He's given Tzimichah to more people than any other person in history. He's given rabbinic ordination. Yes, it's impact. And that's the highest shiur or level probably in the world. Why was he able to do that? Because everybody flocked to him. In other words, he, had, he always had 70 or 80 students, 100 students in his class. I mean, I'm going to describe that in a, in a few minutes. So there were so many people there. So it was probably the highest shiur in the world, people will say to you. And if, if it's such, and he is the greatest teacher. Of the, so, so then he's given these, all these people. So they, and again, ask Rabbi Harari, who was there for one day, which is, ask him if he was so impacted. He may not have been. I was as we'll describe later on. So, I think he has written, he has impacted, and now, it's ten years later, and still his word reverberates. Ten years later, his word still reverberates. What will be ten years from now, I don't know. But as Arnold J. Wolf said, who is Arnold J. Wolf? You don't know that. Wrong. Off base. He is the Reform Hill director at Yale University. Now he's a rabbi of a synagogue in Chicago. He said in an article commentary about 10 or 15 years ago, quote, I suspect that a thousand years from now, they're still going to be reading Soloveitchik, unquote. A thousand years from now. Why? Because works are classics. Because when you read it, you want to read it again. And they touch a, a, a deeply human spiritual chord in whoever reads it. I guess you have to have a certain background. If you're a high school student, you're not going to be able to read. Then you read this book. This is good for beginners in, in Rabbi Shabbat But you read The Lonely Man of Faith, which is more challenging. When you read these books, you're touched. So he did really write a lot, and he did impact a lot, and he did affect a lot. So I think he is there. Not as much as the Rambam, that's true. But he did communicate with many more people than the Rambam did. His impact is certainly significant. But, okay. Now, so I made this, the absurd statement that I, he's an ideal Jew, which I have not yet defended. I did make the statement that he was very enriching, and what I hope to go through over here is that you will see why he's so enriching as a thinker. Okay? So our goal over here is to give a sense or a feeling of who the Rav is. He is a phenomenon many thousands, tens of thousands were deeply impacted by him. He attracted thousands to his shurim. Again, Yerta Shir, in 1971, I was there, there were thousands of people. Two, three thousand people were there. His brilliance is legendary. And this can be discerned from reading his works, or having heard his shiurim. Simply, he saw what others did not see. You read a text, and he reads a text. He, quote, he comes up with a whole formulation that you never had seen, and yet his exposition is so clear, it's so straight, that it's actually simple. That you walk away saying, I knew that all along. He sheds light. So he's able to, oh, open the light, oh, I knew that all along. I once went to a shield of his, must have been 1973, going back, 
and it was on the topic the synagogue as an institution and as an idea that was the topic in Rabbi Lipstein Shul right and uh, you walk, we walked out it was two and a half hours three hours thought it was brilliant an idea conceptualized what synagogue is really all about not historically but philosophically what synagogue really all about but, and there was a high school student there 10th grade says I was sent like all along and I smiled to myself as you just did saying that, yeah, it was so simple, so clear. We all thought we knew that all along. But brilliance is not is the ability to make that which is seemingly obscure, simple, accessible to all. And he did that. He was able to analyze and clarify to the extent that the most obscure text seemed simply say, oh yeah, of course. And again, the test is, if you read The Lonely Man of Faith, the first chapter over here talks about Bereshit, Aleph, and Beth. And at the end of reading it, you'll say to yourself, it's Pashut. Simple. It's right there. We all know this. It's clear. And yet, what is most striking about that is that nobody in 3,000 years of Jewish commentary on Bereshit ever said anything even remotely similar to what the Rav said in Lonely Man of Faith. And yet you're going to read say, oh, I knew this all along. It's clear, simple, straightforward. It's a Pashat. Now, if it's the Peshat, which is an interesting issue, and the fact that it's the Peshat, which means the simple, unordained, unadorned level of the text, if it is the Peshat, isn't it interesting that in 3,000 years of Jewish contract, nobody ever said it? We means we missed it for 3,000 years. And he came along and said, this is the Peshat. He said, yeah, it is the Peshat. This is what Torah really means to teach us in Bereshit, Aleph, and Beth. Nobody ever thought of it before, if it's the Peshat. His presentation is so lucid and so clear, and therefore he wrote so little because he wanted it to be so so clear that that very thin line between Peshat and Dadash is he reading into it or is it really there? Dadash is when you read into it. Peshat is really there. It's so thin that you're not really sure. It's, this seems to be the Peshat of the text, but if it's Peshat, I could never have said it before. So maybe it's Dadash. But it seems to be so tied to the text. He reads text so well, so clear, so. Simply that you say this is the Peshat. Yeah, nobody ever said it before. Now, story. In 1974, I was teaching at my Gendabi day camp. Some of you may have been there. I had the assignment of teaching my fifth grade class about Tefillin. So one of the points that I want to make is that there are two types of Tefillin. Rashi Rabbeinotan. We all know that. So that's a humble for the time for some insight and some sources. They gave us some sources and some insight. Okay, what's it all about? In about three or four minutes, after all my preparation, I spoke about the name Rashid Rabbeinotam. What's the main difference? Well, according to one opinion, the parashio, they both have four parashio, the shodosh, right? And according to one opinion, right, they're either kizedat Torah, that you just, you put them in order of the Torah itself. According to the other opinion, they the two Bahaya should be in the middle. Right? Okay, so I said that, and that was the end of five minutes, eight minutes, that was the whole entire story. But happens to be that three months later, now it's October, November, I was at YU that fall, but Salvechi gave a shiur, strangely, on Tifilin of Rashid Abin Otam. He had the same sources that I did. But he spent three hours on the differences between these two formulations. Now, you tell me now, what did he explain? What did he say? What does all this have to do with anything? Why did he, what is Rashid Abin Otam all about? Well, he was able to construct two different philosophies of religion 
based on the order of the Parashiyot. He saw the order of Parashiyot as reflective of two different philosophies of religion. What comes first, the experience of religion or the intellectual perception of religion? Is religion intellectual or is it experiential? That she had one philosophy of religion and had another philosophy of religion and this he gleaned from the order of the Pedashiot. Isn't that usual, isn't that eisegetical? He's reading into... Why do you say that? So the question is, right now ask the other question. Why does Ashi put Pedashiot in this way? And why did they put it another way? They know each other. It was his grandfather. Right? But he's been learning that she had been in town for many, many years. He knows that philosophy. Well, I'm weird. Wait, you're asking a different question than his? Yeah, we're David's question, right? So, you have to now read the Shi'ud, go to the Shi'ud, it's published, and I think it's published in Hebrew, actually. And, if it's, and you can read the Shi'ud and, and figure it out. Is he reading it or is it really there? He, he's saying that when I look, he's, he's sort of like, um, I don't know if it's the right word, an archaeologist in reverse in that he has the finished product which is that she's order of the parashur, that is order of the parashur, right? So they have to go back and figure out what were they thinking when they decided to put one one way or the other way? What was in their back of their mind? What were they thinking? So he, and you walk away saying, he's right! You walk away reading it or hearing it saying, yeah, that's obvious! That she was thinking that my philosophy of religion dictates that I should put the Parashot in this order, read this order, and his grandson, that Ben Otam, his grandson, right? Grandson. Grandson, I think. Son of grandson. 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 And he said that, that Ben Otam said, no, Grandpa, it's not that way. You put him this other way, based on his philosophy of religion. Now, obviously, by the way, I am oversimplifying this three and a half hours. So, please be aware of that. So, the next step is, if you choose to do this during the summer, David, come, we'll go meet and we will do this. We will see. And you could decide at that point whether or not it is eisegesis or exegesis. Is it into it or is it really the Peshach? Right? Well, what are you saying? Is that that she and Abiyah Trump understood these differences? They understood that I have a philosophical difference. Yes. That's what he's saying. That Abiyah Trump's philosophy of religion dictated that he should put the Tifilin in differently than Rashi. Consciously? Yeah. It would seem to be, yeah. Now that may or may not be historically true. Yeah, that's what Robert seems to be saying. Yes, absolutely. Now, that may not be historically true, but it's a great exercise in asking the question. Ask Ask whoever puts on these two tips of feeling. Say, what's the difference and why? So they'll tell you, the difference is A, B, C. We all know the difference. So the question is now, why? Chamojah, in talking about these two basic things, does not tell you why they're different. So sometimes, A, it's interesting that Professor Bachelet formulates the question. He formulated the question. Why did they differ in how to put the order of Parashiyot? And then, so then if we ask Chamojah the question, or Chamojah whatever, they say, well, why is it different? And see, he says they have different philosophies of religion. Right? So that's an interesting issue. Now, you may agree with the Rabbi Salvechko on that, but it's something that one has to look about. Yeah. From, what, from these brief comments that you made, there's an assumption that Rabbeinu Tam did not explain why he switched it around? Correct. Did not do it. Well, however, this, it came this out. Is how, this, this is how it That's what we found in his tefillin. In other words, I, I don't know, actually, oh, I don't even know, right, I don't even know. It's the Gemara Menachot, I think, talks about it. 
But I don't know if Rabbi Notam ever formulated, I believe he didn't actually, I never heard it said, if he formulated this halakha, right, he formulated it literally. I mean, we don't, again, we don't have Rabbi Notam's books, no books, he's only quoted into Sephora. And why is, why is it, uh, well, we have to go on. Okay. Okay, good. So that's just one issue. So here we have Rabbi Salvatore spending three and a half hours or three hours on what took me eight minutes to do. So again, what is most striking is that no one in the history of Jewish thought ever expressed this idea. That's original, that's both. So that's both. One of the hallmarks of Rabbi Soloveitchik is originality and creativity. He'll tell you that Isha Lacha has to be original and creative. A chidush. For me to simply tell you what he said, Mike, you just said, is nonsensical from Rabbi point of view. It's not what you have to do. A Tamin Acham is he who is original and creative, and thereby linking himself to the chain of Mesorah. Simply say what other people said is not the mark of somebody who learns properly, but it's rather creating a new link, a new idea of thought. Now, Pekeva, doesn't it mention like the different types, like there's three different categories of rabbis, five. they all Good. five or the great. I mean, I just remember two. One is that right. they hold everything. Great, so excellent point. Is, yeah, that's what I had mentioned this past, was last Shabbat. We spoke about the second chapter of Kavot. had five students. Each is crazy, another characteristic. And I've always struggled with this. It's a great point. Whether or not which is the creative and unending flow of Jewish thinking, is the primary category, or is is that the primary category? And they differ. The president of said, a board suit, a cistern, a board is a cistern, which is overlaid with um, suit is a plaster, that never loses a drop of his learning. Same argument in Masech Horayot, which talks about what is better, Oker Harim or Sinai, to be a grinder of text, meaning analytical and brilliant, or is it better to be Sinai? In our day and age, obviously, Chalmud Yosef is a board to great memory. He is a Sinai person. So one would say, is one would say, although he certainly knows everything as well, but he also is a Oker Harim, analytical, conceptual kind of a person. Sinai means you have all the knowledge was going to Sinai by heart. That's Chamuvod Yosef. As opposed to he who grinds mountains, which is analytical. Bold, well, creative. You really need to be the Sinai person, otherwise, you know, you know, forgive me about a person who's a fool. You're correct, good point, but it's not that simple. In that, when Rasulich was learning and studying, none of the Nishonim that we have today were ever published. So they would analyze the new text, and it, would, it turns out that he said 30 years later, of course, they, they, they published the Ramban or the Ritva or Rashva, whatever it was. And many of their formulations were the formulations of the Ramban. What they thought he might have said or would have said. He didn't have all those four. He didn't have any of the Aharim either. He only had the Shurim, the Sam, the Rambam, and, and maybe the Ramban. I don't think he had the Ramban. So, he would be Oker Harim. And he would create, but he wouldn't know all that. He wouldn't read, spend a hundred years and endless hours memorizing Teshuvot. So he doesn't do that. You know, he just doesn't do that. He analyzes it. Here's the truth. Here's the answer. And sorry, I don't know what else says. He doesn't read other books. He doesn't have a, a 10,000 book library. And so I do. Why not? He doesn't need it. I need it. He doesn't need it. Because he has the text, he opens it, he analyzes it. And he grinds it. And he conceptualizes it. I want to know what 300 other people said before I come to many conclusions. 
So that's limiting on my part. Right? I, I, right? So that's what it is. But those are the two prototypes. So right, yes, those two prototypes. Good. So my selection certainly would be that creative, original thinker. And again, a good proof would be to look through this when we bring them if you want to buy them or Lonely Man of Faith, which again somebody should read, and you'll see the Rav's interpretation to Bashid Aleph and Ben, which is simple, elegant, yet profound, and, as mentioned, thoroughly original. Good. Two more minutes. And yet, this simple, unadorned pshat, which nobody has said in the last 3,000 years, we think is the pshat. What the text really means. Now, before all else, I'm going to begin with a disclaimer. Disclaimer on my part. All great men have multiples of students. Some are legitimate and genuine students, some are not. Nietzsche once said, protect me most of all, defend me most of all, from my students. Now those who know who Nietzsche is, know how true that was. Of course you all know the Nazis had adopted him and quoted him because of a sister who misquoted him, and he was right. Nobody wants to have these students who are going to misquote. And students do, because they end up recreating who the master was in their own formulation, their own framework. Great men attract audiences and circles of students. And yet many of these students, either consciously or not, have their own agenda. Larry Kaplan, is a good friend of mine, a professor of Jewish Studies at McGill, wrote a great article saying about 10 years ago, the, what's going to happen now is going to be historical revisionism, which means they're going to rewrite who Rabbi Salah was. And that's what happened. It's accurate, it's accurate that the right-wing community says he didn't care about philosophy, no interest in philosophy, didn't mean anything to him. Whatsoever. He did it as a playtime, as a pastime, when he wasn't really interested in, in living and doing anything serious. That's what they will say about him. And that's not true. It's simply, it's foolish. It's silly. Because those who lived with him, those who knew how passionate he was about philosophy, as he was about communic learning as well. It wasn't a pastime. He engaged in it seriously as a great mind would. It was not simply a pastime. He spent seven, eight years getting a PhD in philosophy, secular philosophy, not Jewish studies, secular philosophy. Why? Because it was truth and he felt a need to know and connect with truth. So let's always beware of those students who have their own agenda. I believe Rabbi Meiselman has his own agenda, though he's a nephew-in-law of Rabbi Salabachik. I wouldn't read any of his books on it. I think he's really way off base. Rabbi Meir Tursky, who's a grandson, I think is closer to the Rav, but I think he's also sees, and I have a lot of respect to him, sees only one dimension. Only one dimension. Because you, you tend to see in that person the dimension that reflects you, as I am doing as well, obviously. You tend to see in a multifaceted personality those dimensions that reflect who you are. It's, I guess, human nature. But I think that's very true of Robert Tversky as well. May Tversky. Tremendous time but that's the personality. But I think he's off. And on the other hand, when you hear of a Riskin, who studied with him for seven, eight years, and a Berman or Berlitzstein, they see another dimension. And therefore, the truth is that all of these are true. With the exception of Rabbi Meiselman, I think all these dimensions are true. But Soloveitchik did have many facets to him. And he sometimes, you sometimes walked away with a sense of hearing what you wanted to hear. Some people did. Not all, but some people did. 
compounded by another story. This is the last thing I'll tell you. I'm really out of focus over here, but I know the ten pages, so we get this now. Uh, the other story is once I was invited when I was in the Shi'ud to his apartment. Four or five six of us were invited to his apartment at night to spend, you know, an hour, an hour and eight, whatever it was. I guess he, we had tea, I don't know, maybe we didn't have tea, of, um, and discussing whatever questions we had. So we went to his apartment, it was a wonderful experience, five six of us, and one of the persons who were there was saying, said to him, Rabbi, I have a very serious question to ask you. What kind of questions you want? So we asked, he asked him. I don't want to be in college. I shouldn't be in college. I'm afraid of what college is really all about. It's taken away from my learning. Is it why you? I should be learning. I shouldn't be in college. So now, Rebbe, what should I do? Now, what do you think of what Sarah Vajic said? Do what you want to do. No, no. Phil, of course, is right. You're all wrong. Where he said, quote, I can't answer that question. I'm not a Hasidic Rebbe. I don't give brachas. If do what you think is right, quote, I was there, I don't believe in spiritual slavery. Now, what does that mean? He was an existentialist in the sense that you have to self-determine. He's not going to tell you what to do in life. He's going to throw the ball back in your court. You must spiritually create who you are. So if it's right for you to leave, then leave. If it's right for you to stay, then stay. But I'm not the Rebbe. Now, a Hasidic Rebbe tells you what kind of insurance to buy. Right. <laughs> everything, from, from A to Z. You go to the Rebbe for everything, and you go for his brachas. So it does not give out berachot, does not hold you to any kind of spiritual slavery. He says, you do what you want, and, what's the end? Bear the consequences. Take responsibility, which is an existential thought as well. So in that context as well, or celebration, would, in a certain sense, disown many of these students of his. And therefore, if you were Rabbi Riskin, and you want to give, let's say, a Sivah Torah to women to carry some Ha Torah, and of course you would never do anything against Halakha. Right? That's an absolute principle. Rabbi Riskin, of course, is a 1,000% bona fide Halakha Jew. So you'd go to your Rebbe, to Rabbi Salvation. Don't, uh, don't be misled by my use of the term Rebbe in the Hasidic sense where he's a Rebbe and for P.B. Sukhova is a Rebbe that's two different senses of the word is that clear? got it? yes? okay so Rabbi Rishon will go to him and say well what should I do now? so what would Rabbi Salachik say to him? he'd say go study the sources on your own and come back to me so you went to study the sources on your own and you studied all the Gemarot and everything else he says now we talk about it they discuss the issue then he'd say to him Rishon what do you think? and he would say what he thought and Rabbi would say, your thinking is in line with what you learned. Now, is that an endorsement or not? That's an endorsement. You might say, no. You're on the right track. You're on the right track, but again, make your own decision. Okay, good. Good. So, in the same way that you could argue about this is what people now argue about. Some will say, Rabbi will say, Rabbi Berman will say, Rabbi will say, that's an endorsement. He said, I can do it. On the other hand, those will say, no, you took out what you wanted from it. And the answer is, Rabbi is. It's not in line because you're ignoring certain things, or you're. It is in line, so it was in line. If it was not in line, if you were not endorsing it. No, no, no. You would tell him as a teacher, as a responsible teacher, he would say. He learned the whole sugya. So he said, you're not misreading the sources. Your conclusions are valid. 
But he's, what he's not saying is maybe there are other conclusions so also. Have come to two different exactly. So that's very possible. So our Muslimin will say, he never said that, that women of the Torah, because they said it to me, told to me first, I was there, you weren't there. Yeah, but I, said, but I was with them other times, he said, you can't do this. So our Muslimin probably asked the question in a particular fashion. Isn't it terrible that women carry the Torah and the Torah? And they'll say, I understand your position. <laughs> So how do you learn from a rabbi like this? I, I mean this with respect. What do you mean? We have to do this with him all the time. No, how do you learn from someone? Wow, what a low blow. If I, if I came to you when I Check said... Check his ID. Just the one hand. Maybe with more questions than we come in. Well, that's good. That's really good. No, if I came to you but your point's I... well taken. Okay, you know what I mean. Then. But I think your point's well taken. And, and the answer is, you learn to be creative and stand on your own two feet. Period. But you learn. You get the guidance. One of the stories that I didn't get to, and I'm going to leave now because it is raining and it is late. But um, I didn't get to half what I want to tell you about. But one of the stories that I'm going to tell you um, is the before coming to Deal, New Jersey, I was had a lot of questions, and I asked to meet with him. And I met with him for 40 minutes the last week or two that I was in Boston before coming to Deal, and it was just an extraordinary conversation where he told me how to think on your own two feet. He was willing to take that risk. Not, not every rabbi is, not every teacher is. Which is, you have to, you've been trained, now do it. So that's one angle. And I take responsibility for what you're doing. So there's a lot more to speak about over here. I hope I gave you some sense, at least, as to who Rabbi Salvechik is and was. Uh, as well, uh, there, again, is much, much more to speak about. But I would want you to walk away with a sense of the Rambam and Rabbi a sense of how unique Rabbi Salvechik was the values that he emphasized in terms of creativity, originality, boldness, as well, of course, his profound commitment to traditional Judaism. Don't think that he's anything other than that. He studied the sources and followed the sources, but as well, of course, was very much concerned with uh, truth as an absolute. Are there any questions? Was there any philosophy? Uh, Mostly oral, all oral actually, all oral. Although there are um, there is two or three books, two books called Halakh Positions of Eretz and his students know his positions. He, had, he was a very finely tuned halachist, of course. So he had a lot of psak halacha, a lot. But but his students know them. Women covering hair, not covering the hair, is a famous one. Eating cheese, not eating cheese, another famous one. So there is a whole two books published by Jason Harrison called The Halakhic Positions of Rabbi Salavajik. That's the boy. Two, uh, two books. And the third is a book on prayer. We had a course in Maimonides, which Rabbi Salavajik insisted that we teach, on Biurat Tefillah. Prayer. Which every Shiva should have. How come we don't have it, you know, Magenda Vipo? We pray every single day. We all should have this book. And the teacher of it, Rabbi Walgamuth, who's a great personality, wrote up Rabbi Salvechik's partially, I guess, view on prayer. Not only philosophy prayer, but halakhli, what to do in prayer. So he wrote up that as well. So those three do have his pronouncements about the, a lot of those issues. So a lot of it is there. There is a lot of that out. And especially um, the Misorah journals, there's tw- 19 of them now published, all have his halakhli positions on a lot of issues. So there's a lot of stuff out. What about the book, uh, Reflections of the Rabbi, uh, I think by Rabbi Benjamin? Yeah, it's, it's, when it came along in its time, it was great, it was wonderful. It's a journalistic reconstruction of his essays, of his oral presentations. But it's limited also. You don't get the full feeling of it. It's a summary of what the Rabbi was talking So it's, it's good, but not great. Good, but not great.
Okay. Um, so next yes. week, Rabbi Harari Yes. The yes. So I guess the week after, I will just finish what I want to do over here, and then if we have the time, we'll go into the next step, next stage, of Mr. Levitch as the shaper of American orthodoxy. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.